This is the show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. This is Richard Solomon, My Father's Place Radio. Wow, we got a show today. I have Mike Riley from Pure Prairie League. So, Mike, thanks for being with us. You're currently on tour. And let me just start with one question. Where were you on June 12th, 1980? <laughs> I, I, know, I know I'm a lawyer. <laughs> but- June 12th, let me see. That would have been, um, we were in Los Angeles, and we were taping the uh, Dick Clark American Bandstand. Close. You were at my father's place in Roslyn, Long Island, but but I think that was the same time frame. So let's talk about both. <laughs> That's right. It was. It was right after uh, we did my father's place. Right after we did the the album and uh, all the TV shows out there. All right. So let's talk about Dick Clark. Because oh, by the way, PurePrairieLeague.com is the website. In case you want to know. Um, so you guys, you guys were on American Bandstand, and for those who may not remember, that was the show to be on. And the iconic Dick Clark was the host, and he was a, he was the host for decades. And, the world's and, oldest teenager. Yeah, and he never aged. He, you know, him and Casey Kasem always just looked so youthful. I guess they they slept in a freezer or something, you know, or something like that. So, first of all, how did you book that show? And then let's talk about the clip where uh, Dick, who's kind of a giant. Didn't feel so. Didn't feel that way. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, um, he was. Uh, you know, he's 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 a little bit uh, smaller in stature than Vince Gill and myself, and uh, and Dick was in between us. And uh, as a matter of fact, I was actually even watching CBS uh, Morning News this morning, and there was a segment on Vince Gill, and it showed him in the band with Pure Prairie League and uh, being interviewed by Dick, and it showed him putting Dick uh, putting his arm around Dick's shoulders. <laughs> Dick off camera looked over up up. That Vince and said, "Don't touch me." Yeah, I, it, it, on camera he was a little weirded out <laughs> that he felt so small. Yeah, uh, it was. He was in the land of the giants. Yeah. Well, also in those days, yet you, you had bigger hair. <laughs> Good point. So, so talk about that 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 performance. What was it? What was it actually like? And and what is it like for you to watch it today in perspective? Well, you know, that was 1980 and this is 20 this is almost 2020. So that's 40 years and it's um, you know, it's uh, it's not really disconcerting, but it's really interesting to look back and see, you know, how you looked and how you moved and and uh just what you were doing 40 years ago. It's uh it's it kind of just blows my mind that it's been 40 years since uh, we we did that show, but uh the show was a blast to do and there were everybody was very accommodating. And uh, you know, Dick comes into the green room before uh, before the performance and introduces himself and chats for a minute and stuff like that. So you know, I mean, he's actually really, really just the nicest guy in the world. And um, you know, for what he has to do and what he's done for all those years, uh, we had a tremendous amount of respect for the man, and uh, we had a great time on that show. So, did, if you were to take like a time machine and from today and kind of go back into time, would you be able to tell yourself? You know, the Mike Riley of 1980 say, hey, dude, this this performance is going to be on like televisions on people's desktops, <laughs> you know, all these, you know, accessible on like these portable phones and all this other stuff. So so, so you're going to be much cooler than you think. I mean, you know, did you realize then what the potential was for its longevity and impact even today, even by people who aren't even maybe around to even know who Dick Clark was and American Bandstand and all that stuff? You know, we never we never thought in those terms, Rich. Um, uh, it, we were basically out there doing one day, one week, one month, one tour at a time, one album at a time, and, uh, you know, just hoping that people would um, take to it and, and keep moving, especially in the uh, competitive environment of rock and roll music. And, uh, you know, because it's... it's Rock and roll doesn't seem to shrink as much as it grows in terms of uh, of membership uh, year by year. And I mean, you know, you look at the crop of musicians and and uh, and people that are coming out with with uh, music and videos and what have you. Now, I mean, forty years ago, we didn't think any there would be anything like YouTube or the uh, you know the the internet streaming services. And it's just amazing to to see you know where. It's come, and we've actually been lucky enough to be able to kind of coattail along with it. Has has the internet helped you more than it's hurt you? 
Because, you know, in some, and the reason why I ask it that way is because, you know, everybody wants the exposure, but then the problem is with the exposure is that, hey, I've already seen it, <laughs> you know, that kind of mentality. Um, and, and I'll follow up with, but there's still nothing like a live performance. Well, that's true. And uh, that, sh- that should and hopefully will never be replaced. Um, you know, the uh, it, people's tastes change over the years, and they also, you know, I mean, some people go along with the times and keep up with technology, and other people, you know, are just steadfast in their in their, uh, you know, what, what makes them tick and, and, uh, don't like the changes, but, um, it, the internet's helped us because it's introduced us to just a huge, you know, I mean, there's millions and millions and millions of people. And I think that's, what's, uh, contributing to the fact that we have, uh, you know, that we're, we're in our 50th year and, um, and people are still interested in our music. They like our album covers, uh, and the graphics, they like our music because it's, uh, kind of timeless. And, um, you know, it's, it's actually gratifying, uh, to, to see what <laughs> these young kids have come up with in terms of technology to, uh, keep us old guys, uh, you know, still in the spotlight a bit. Well, I, all I can tell you is this, on June 12th, 1980, there is a YouTube video of your performance at my father's place that was broadcast by WLIR. I have a feeling it's not an authorized copy on the internet. But what you guys played was it was you guys just rocked the house. It was the great. It was a great, great show. Because uh, and the thing that's great is because I couldn't have been there at, at that particular date and time. I could actually like sort of get to be there. So it was you, you opened with Kansas City Southern, and then you played the following songs: "She's All Mine," "I'll Fix Your Flat Tire Merle," which I I got to talk to you about that because um, that's a great story. Uh, <laughs> "Let Me Love You Tonight," "Ain't Living Long Like This," "I'll Be Damned," "Tulane Highway." Uh, Jenny Lou, Amy, of course, picking to the beat of the devil, picking to beat the devil. Sorry, I'm mm-hmm. um, almost ready. And freeborn man. So that was that was just an electrifying concert. It was you know lively and powerful, and you know I was I, you know we we always do our good show prep here. So I wanted to make sure that I re-listened to that because I actually really like your music. Um, what was that performance like uh, for you at my father's place? And did you play there more than once? Oh, we played my father's place every year for years and years, and sometimes two and three times a year. If we were anywhere near the uh, northeast area, Epi would call us up and say, "Hey, I got a, neat, a night open. Can you guys uh, come in?" So, you know, we my father's place was sort of almost like a home base for us, and um, uh, you know, Epi always took real good care of us, and the and the place was packed every time we played there. Um, we had people like uh, Richie Canada. Uh, Billy Joel, sax player at the time, come in and sit in with us, and David Sanborn, and you know we had all kinds of uh, guest stars that would pop in, and and uh, my father's place was that kind of a that kind of a, a, a nightclub where you know musicians felt comfortable and the crowd felt comfortable, and uh, people would just you know it would it would be a, a its own little microcosm. People would cut loose and dance, and you know they're on the tables and singing along, and uh, and the bands would pretty much be doing the same thing. Wow. So have, you've not yet seen or performed yet at the new My Father's Place. That's No, but we will September. be there on Friday, September 13th. Right. Now, what you will see is that they have an amazing sound system. And it's, a, it's just a beautiful place and it's very comfortable. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'll have to t- talk to you after the show to get, get a little feedback. But, you know, um, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see if there's anybody in the audience who were at some of the original shows coming back to see this? I'll, you know, we actually take a little survey, so maybe we'll find that out. We can I can, I can, uh, you know, I, I would put money down that there will be several people, and I know of one in particular who's one who's been one of our web guys for years, Tom Sheridan, uh, who was at every performance we ever did on Long Island and in the area, and I know he's going to be there. So right. there's at least one. All right. Well, you know, so do you have any good epi stories for me? I always like oh. I always like to hear it from the different artists, Epi stories, because Epi, you know, Epi and I are very close, and Epi always tells me great stories about all kinds of things. And sometimes we try to record them and put them up on the My Father's Place radio podcasts and radio shows on FM and things like that. But you have any good F, do you have any good Epi stories for me for for this particular broadcast? Well, to to, to be honest, uh, you know, I mean, we always had a great relationship, and uh, you know, we went from you know the band 
front man or band leader guy dealing with the club owner and making sure that uh, you know the, that the the cash count was correct and and let me see the ticket uh, you know let me see your ticket sales manifest and uh, down to you know not even looking at the envelope anymore. It's just like you know I trust you, you trust me, and we uh, you know we do good business together. But uh, you know the, the other stories that uh, that that are rife in the industry, um, decorum prohibits me from <laughs> divulging. Uh, you know it's that's that's uh, that's that's, uh, that's material for the uh, for the book. Okay. So people are going to have to wait for the book. <laughs> but they don't have to be those kinds of stories. But like Epi tells stories like. Um, he actually suggested to Linda Ronstadt, for example, to do Heatwave when she ran out of songs. Um, and there was just like little funny things. You know, he, he got Peter Tosh to be up on uh, Saturday Night Live uh, with Mick Jagger when they did Walk and Don't Look Back. Um, so when you talk to all kinds of people, you get all these great insights, either that Epi may have introduced them to some artist or some collaboration or, you know, who, do you remember who you headlined with? Um, at my at my father's place back in uh, the day. Well, actually, most of the times we were the headliner. Right, but do you know who appeared like like as your opening acts, for example? Oh, jeez. And did any I, of those people jump on stage with you guys? You know, for yes, a song or two? Had, yeah, we all, a lot of times had. You know, I mean, like Ozark Mountain Daredevils and uh, and um, you know uh, Rhythm Aces and people like that. Uh, you know, that were sort of contemporaries of ours in the day. When we were doing those double bill shows, um, you know, we'd always wind up uh, uh, invading each other's space. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the club like? Because I've only seen pictures of it. How many did it hold? And was it was it from what was it like from a musician's point of view? Well, luckily, you know, the bandstand, it was a long throw room and uh, the bandstand was back on the back end. So we basically just looked out and what uh, what probably was only about, I would say, 300 people look like, you know, 2000, <laughs> um, because, and, and I don't think anybody ever sat down, you know, there was a big space, you know, for people to dance and then there were tables and that for people to sit at, but I don't think anybody ever sat down at any of the shows we played and it just, you know, so it looked like, uh, the combination of the dance, dance area and mosh pit at, at a big concert. Now, no, I know that there was a relationship between WLIR and my father's place. They did a lot of the broadcasts. Do, sure. do you have any good stories or memories of uh, either WLIR broadcasting any of your shows or listening? Well, you know, yeah, we'd always try to get into the station when we could, and uh, you know, and and uh, do some uh, you know some live stuff at the uh, radio station. But LIR really got behind the band, and uh, they used to sponsor these things called Party in the Park at Belmont Racetrack, and we did several of those. And uh, one year, I remember we. In order to get to play the show, we were uh, we were playing with Charlie Daniels, I think, and Marshall Tucker and the Outlaws, and because uh, we were sort of like a, a local favorite, we had flown in on a jet from uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, into LaGuardia, and then they had a, a, a helicopter pick us up, wow, <laughs> and land us at Belmont Racetrack, right in back of the stage, and I mean, it was like. Beatles, you know, time, they, we jumped out of the helicopter, ran up on stage, put on our guitars and, and, and right into, into a Kansas city Southern. And the, the crowd was just, you know, and there were thousands and thousands of people at those parties. Um, the crowd went wild and, and, uh, Charlie told me later because we were touring with Charlie Daniels and Marshall Tucker. Charlie said, uh, he says, Mike, I don't think I want to be your opening act. <laughs> <laughs> you said just like because I saw I just saw Charlie Daniels being interviewed by Sammy Hagar on you know his show on Access TV. That was a perfect Charlie's Dan, Charlie Daniels impression. I know that Charlie Daniels played a number of times at um, my father's place because Epi tells oh yeah stories about Charlie Daniels and stuff of like course. that. Yeah, of course. So well, I will. You know, here's one little thing that I will divulge that uh, that is not exactly our proudest moment, but. Um, we used to, you know, we hung out in Sag Harbor out on the east end of Long Island for years and years, and that's where I live now. But uh, when we'd play these places, you know, like my father's place, all my friends from Sag Harbor would uh, would rent a bus or two and just party all the way down, party all the way back, and nobody had to worry about driving. Smart, so, smart, yeah. So, uh, but uh, two of my friends, one who has uh, since passed away, one of my best friends, Jim Smythe, owned a local establishment in Sag Harbor, and... Um, and his friend uh, Black Bart would uh, would uh, always come down to see us. And 
they would, you know, after a couple of cocktails, they would feel emboldened enough to jump out on the stage. And these were two big guys, <laughs> barrel-chested, big beards and stuff like that. And, you know, people were wondering, who are these guys? And I blurted out one time, hey, man, uh, let's give it up for Big Jim and Black Bart from the Charlie Daniels Band. <laughs> and people would go nuts. Until finally one night, Charlie pulled me aside again and he said, Mike, he said, you know, I, I appreciate what you're doing, but he said, uh, mentioning the CDB and all, he said, but, you know, them boys ain't in my organization. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I apologized and, uh, and told uh, my friends that, you know, they're going to have to, we're going to have to change their identities. Right. They, they, they're now with Jackson Brown. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so. Is there a picture of you in the Norman Rockwell Museum? And if not, why? Because <laughs> think about this. You're, you have, you know, the iconic picture of Norman Rockwell in a lot of your uh, album artwork. It, there's a, I believe there's a Norman Rockwell Museum somewhere in Massachusetts. Yeah, in Stockbridge, where his studio was. Right. So should I not fly in a picture of you guys? <laughs> well, actually, we do have a picture of the band there about four or five years ago. We stopped by and spent the day there with the director of the museum and, you know, looking at all the exhibits. And uh, um, years ago, in 1975, we were up in that area touring, and we got to visit Rockwell's studio and meet him. And, uh, you know, that was a, that was, you know, that's a life-changing moment. Uh, uh, he loved what we were doing with the you know, with the album covers sure. and using, you know, we got permission years ago when we did the first record from RCA Records. Uh, they got permission from Saturday Evening Post to use their script and from Rockwell to use the uh, the uh, Saturday Evening Post cover. And uh, we kind of adopted that as our logo, which, you know, turns out 50 years later that it was branding before branding was a term. And it's iconic. <clears throat> exactly. Right. So, but uh, Rockwell said he loved the... Uh, you know, love the fact that we were staying true to the to the cowboy and to the spirit, and we made him an official prairie dog, and uh, you know the sixth member of the band, and and, uh, and so we went back to visit the, the the museum a few years ago, and uh, and the director was very gracious, taking us uh, you know around and into the closed areas and things like that, and of course our our uh, Saturday evening post cover. Um, is in a frame up there on the wall. Wow. I have an original copy from 1927 in, wow. in my office. And several, you know, I've got probably a dozen of the Rockwell signed uh, prints of our of our cover. But uh, um, uh, related to that story, uh, we were playing in Marin County in San Rafael a couple of years ago. And uh, uh, the original Norman Rockwell, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the original oil painting which was not destroyed in the fire in his studio years ago, it hangs in George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch. Wow. wow. Yeah, so Lucas owns the original. And I, I actually sent him several emails and calls, you know, saying, is there any way that we could come by and just, you know, Take look at the picture and, <laughs> and, uh, and maybe get a picture with it. But, you know, it's, Lucas is a busy man, and I'm sure he's got, you know, 3,000 staffers uh, running interference. So we never got to see the oil, the, the original oil up front. But, uh, you know, we've seen so many pictures, and I've got a signed Rockwell uh, print of it. Uh, so, you know, it's it, it's just an amazing uh, part of the band's legacy that, uh, you know, that this this grizzled old cowboy named James K. Van Brunt uh, um, has stuck with us all these years. All right, speaking of which, this is Richard Solomon. Mike Riley of Pure Prairie League will be right back. This is Russell Hitman Alexander from the Hitman Blues Band, and you are listening to Richard Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. Welcome back, everybody. Richard Solomon, My Father's Place Radio with Mike Riley of Pure Prairie League, purepraerieleague.com. The year is 2019, and they are currently on tour, going all kinds of places. Go to purepraerieleague.com and uh, check out their schedule. They will be at My Father's Place on September 13th, 2019. But if you're hearing this in the future, you missed a good show, and you'll have to catch them when they return. Um, one of the things they were talking about offline or in pre-production, as we say in radio, was you you guys have basically composed the soundtrack 
for our our lives, all of us, you know, out there. I mean, there there, there isn't a person out there who hasn't been touched by your music, has a fond memory, or maybe even named Amy or Jamie Lou. <laughs> That's true. That's you know, true. you know, I'm sure that there's a couple of Melissas out there because of the Almond Brothers um, and things like that. So you never really know. What, what is you know what is the feedback that you receive from all the fans out there after shows and traveling and whatever? There must be so many people saying, "Oh, I love your music." Um, I've seen so many shows. I, I you, you were talking about the three genera- the tr- three generation of Amy's. Well, talk about that. Yeah, we were uh, we were in Longmont, Colorado, and we played their street festival in the summertime every year, where they close down the streets and they get five, six, eight thousand people. And um, this lady came up to us and she said, "I want to introduce ourselves to you guys. We love your music. Uh, my name is Amy, <laughs> and uh, this is my daughter Amy, and this is my granddaughter Amy." Now, the the, the original grandma Amy was named after the song Once in Love with Amy, which was a popular hit back in the 40s. Um, But her daughter, she named Amy after our song, and her daughter named her daughter Amy after our song, spelled the the same way as the song. A-M-I-E, yes. Yes, exactly, which is actually, you know, the word, it's the French word for female friend. Aha, uh-huh, Ami. <laughs> Ami, that's right. So there you go. Yeah, it's a good problem. Um, and that's, you know, you know, on a side note, there never was really anyone named Amy that the song was written for. It was a song written about love. Aha. Uh-huh. So it's- and love for a female friend. Who shall, who shall remain... Uh, anonymous at her request until the book is written that's right that's right <laughs> with the other stories <laughs> so is there is there a book in you that's leaping out to be written and published one day one day oh, it's about it's about halfway there All right. um, now if i could ever get off the road i could finish the daggone thing up and you know what to, to, i've written books and I'm a radio guy, so you know I understand a little bit of the process from my perspective. But it, you know, I've never written a song in my life. Everything, whether it's a book or a song, starts with a blank piece of paper. But how is the book writing process different, if any, from your songwriting process? Um, the songwriting process is uh, is more of capturing an inspired moment. Uh, and, and writing a book I've found over the years that I just, you know, on scraps of napkins and pieces of paper and, and hotel stationery and everything else. And then finally trying to get it down, you know, into a transcribable format, um, is they're, they're two totally different things. Uh, a moment of inspiration, even in the middle of the night can make you get up and get out of bed and grab your guitar and, you know, get that idea down because you don't want to lose it. Um, and book writing is basically a, a, an exercise in memory and, uh, and uh, you know, how much, how much you paid attention in English class. <laughs> well, I'm doomed. <laughs> <laughs> no, believe me, I think I was just trying to come up with an explanation, but uh, it's, uh, you know, they're both interesting uh, ways to, uh, you know, release that creative uh, devil. From what perspective are you writing the book about? Your, your yourself your memoir is it is it like from here going back is it more chronological is it you know different stories that are just comprised chapters well the way you know the the the, uh, the the form that it's in right now once again because it's only about half finished is 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 uh you know it's more of a random uh collection of thoughts and instances and memories um you know, that's the editor's job finally when it gets down to, you know, here it is. It, it's like it's like handing the IRS a shoebox full of receipts. <laughs> but that's always dangerous because they, they can interpret it their way, whereas your interpretation that's of, true, but of, once the, again, of the audit is going to be much different. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's it's no fun. It's it's you know, it's like pulling teeth without Novocaine, but uh um it uh you know, it, it, it all comes out. I've i I'm sort of a fan of these uh you know, these bios now, and because you get uh, books on tape and, you know, you can listen to those on the airplane and you're going to, you get books. Uh, I've got, I've probably got, I don't know, 200 books in my iPad, wow. uh, 
you know that uh, that and some I haven't even gotten to, but you know that some are some are very very interesting. I mean, like Keith Richards's book and Bruce Springsteen's book, um, uh, you know, amazing the, the the power of recall uh, that these guys had and uh, um, or have, and 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 uh, you know some of the some of the stories just are amazing. You know, some of it gets a, a bit into minutia and you know um, gets a little. Uh, tiresome at times, or you know, wearying. But uh, but I'm just amazed. You know, I mean, the books. You know, Chrissy Hines' book and um, uh, Sean Colvin and uh, you know, every everybody that's writing uh, the, their bios these days. It's uh, these are talk about soundtrack of your life. Well, here's the script. Wow, very very meaningful. Do you read these books? differently because you're a musician and the experiences of being on the road resonate more with you than maybe someone like myself who's just a fan i don't use that as a as a criteria i do it because i'm a fan and because i'm interested so i think i'm coming at it from basic a basic consumer level but then i can relate to so much of what they're talking about because um you know the, the only people that get musicians road stories are musicians because it's hard for you know um, uh, civilians, if you will, to <laughs> be able to relate to uh, you know to the to the, the the war and the horror stories of uh, of being on the road, um, and we don't want to you know burst anyone's bubbles because that's what they're coming and paying their hard-earned money to see at uh, places like my father's place. But but let's talk about that because that's an important component. There's a lot of schlepping. There's a lot of waiting around. There's a lot of planes and rental cars and buses and downtime and wasted time, I guess, to some extent. Um, I'm sure there's frustrations with, you know, sound systems and equipment or things that are either broken in transit or things that aren't um, available at the venue that are supposed to be there. I, I know that's all part of it, but, you know, after so many decades of doing this, um, does it get, is it any easier or is it it's the same grind? Well, <clears throat> speaking from a, a perspective of being almost seventy, um, <laughs> it's it doesn't get any easier. Uh, things are, you know, a, a, a bit more organized. But then again, uh, you know, right when you think they're more organized, uh, there's the snafu creeps in. Um, uh, you know, it's you were right about a lot of time being spent uh, schlepping and sitting around and hurrying up and waiting. Um, and I think that especially musicians that have toured for years and have been through all that and, you know, rolling with the punches um, and uh, adapting on the fly uh, now have a little less patience for uh, uh, snafus. And uh, but the, but the uh, the other thing is, is that they're sort of, you know, they're they're broken in enough that they know that, uh, hey, this is what it is. And let's just go do what we do. So it's it's uh, you know it's kind of a trade off, but I you know, once again now I say that uh, we get paid to travel because we certainly don't get paid enough to, uh, you know we don't get paid enough to travel as much as we do, and uh, and and we basically play for free. But that's because we have to, because we're musicians, and uh, you know that's how we exercise our our uh, the creative part of our brains. Let's talk about the economics of the music industry just for a little bit, because, you know, in, in the old days, there was, you know, music, there was record stores. <laughs> Remember those things? Sure. And uh, there was no downloading. There was no Internet. And you would go to a record store and you would discover all kinds of music and you would listen to all kinds of music in the store. I'll, I'll never forget. I, I was at, I think it was JNR Music World. And I think I heard for the first time, Three Doors Down. They were just mm -hmm. playing it. And of course, they had the the album up uh, by the cash register, and you know now playing. And I was like, "Wow, who are these guys?" And it was like the album was like it was like this first or two days of its release. And I was like, "Wow!" Um, and I remember going to Sam the Record Man in Canada, in two different stores. It was Toronto and Montreal. And I remember they had all these quote imports because they were music from Europe and other places that we didn't really have in the states. As as somebody who kind of has seen the evolution of the music business and the decline of the tower records and the retail stores and things like that. How has that affected you both as a musician and as a consumer of music? 
Well, as a consumer, I miss those places. Uh, you know, Licorice Pizza and Peaches and Tower Records and, and uh, Long Island Sound out where I live. You know, I yeah. mean, it's, it, it, to go and spend hours actually browsing through a record store and picking up something that you might not have, you know, otherwise noticed, <clears throat> that was the, uh, you know, that was the strong point of, of all those places. Uh, and I miss that, and I think... Um, these, you know, the the last few generations uh, that didn't get to experience that uh, have missed a huge part of of uh, the whole musical experience. Um, uh, but you know, it, it's well, it's sort of like how the music business. You know, it's hard to uh, read liner notes when you're streaming a record. Do Do you miss you know everything that you know from album art and lyrics on the 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 album? you know, sleeves, so to speak, and all that great stuff. And, Absolutely. And the, and the posters, the free posters. <laughs> yeah, that stuff was, you know, once again, it, it was that was part of the experience. And, you know, when you sit there listening, you know, you're sitting in your living room or in your basement or your bedroom or whatever, listening to these records and you're reading the, you know, you're looking at the album cover art and you're reading the liner notes on the back and you're, you know, reading the lyrics along with the songs and that, you know, that's a, that's an immersive, uh, human experience. And I think that that is, uh, you know, is, is unfortunately pretty much, uh, missing these days in these days of streaming, et cetera. And it's, it's, uh, it's instant content, it's instant gratification and it's gone and there are no memories made. But that's you know it's the uh, that's the inexorable march of of progress I guess. If, so, if, um, if it's really progress, do you, do you remember the first forty five you bought? Yes, I do. What was that? It was Desafinado by the Stan Getz. Wow! Uh, by Stan Getz, I was twelve years old, and I went to the C and D Record Bar in Newport, Kentucky. Um, because I used to listen to the jazz station in uh, in Northern Kentucky that was built on a barge down on the Ohio River, and they, they uh, Desipanado was, you know, a standard in 1956 and 58 and 62, 64. So I went down to the C&D, and I bought that record, and on the back of it was Misty by Joe Stafford. Wow. Wow. Now, is that the Joe Stafford that I don't like spiders and snakes? <laughs> no, that was a... <laughs> <laughs> Different Joe Stafford. <laughs> Yeah, Joe Stafford was an old Dorch singer. So yeah, that, but that was the first record I bought, and then from then on, you know, it was the Beatles and everything else. I just I wore that place out. So when the Beatles hit, I, I, I can't tell you how many different people I've interviewed, and they've all mentioned the Beatles. Uh, what was your Beatles aha moment experience? Was it Ed Sullivan? Was it just uh, hearing them on the radio, or combination of all of it? Well, the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, you know, I was I was hip to what they were doing. I ordered the Beatle fan kit, you know, that came with the that funky wig and the you know the picture with the guys standing there, you know, holding cigarettes and and uh, and uh, stuff like that. But I didn't get it in time for the Ed Sullivan show. But I did watch the Sullivan show, and then I saw the Beatles at Cincinnati Gardens the first time they played there in I think '66, and um, you know, I was hooked. I saw them at uh, at Crosley Field when they played the ball ballpark there, and uh, you know you couldn't hear the noise for the screaming. And uh, the opening act was the Circle Turn Down Day. Remember those guys? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and they, you know, you could. I felt so bad for them because you know you couldn't hear them, and it was like you know what are you guys doing? Get get the hell off the stage. <laughs> we want the Beatles, and then they'd scream through the thing so loud that you couldn't hear anything anyway. But those, you know, that that's. I don't think there's anybody that can't say that the Beatles were, uh, you know, life-changing. How were they life-changing for you? Oh, melody, music, songwriting, uh, lyricism, you know. I mean, they they didn't, you know, there was nothing manufactured about them in terms of, uh, you know, manufactured stardom like it is today. I, you know, I mean, it was Brian that got him to dress Natalie and uh, you know dress well and present themselves well. Well, uh, Brian Epstein, their manager, but another um, Epi. <laughs> yeah, there you go. A different That's right. <laughs> Long lost relative of Michael, huh? but um, 
uh, yeah, that, it, you know that that uh, that was just the music that came out of those guys, and it was you know it was just the the perfect storm of timing, and uh, you know and the times in general uh, at that you know at that particular point in history, and uh, wow, talk about the you know <laughs> the luck of the draw and, and turning it into gold, and they were only around for you know a few years. But in those few years, they really really did. An enormous amount of diverse, rich music. Absolutely, yeah. they they didn't they didn't get stuck in one formula. They tried to do everything else. I mean, they were doing sambas and mambos, you know, and I love her and and uh, you know uh, things like that. That uh, they were they were pushing the envelope, pushing the boundaries, and and actually unwittingly, I think, uh, exposing the general public to uh, you know to uh, uh, all the different. Um, styles of music that uh, you know that were available. Do you still have your vinyl collection? Um, I've got uh, the ones that my favorites. I've got the ones that I kept. Um, I've had two fires uh, in houses and lost a lot to salvage. You know, a few things over the years that uh, that I that I hold dear, and I still have a turntable and an old fashioned stereo as well as my other stuff. So. Now, before we go, we have like one minute. Well, I'll ask this on the other side of the break. But, but did, were you like a component stereo guy where you got like the Technics turntable, but the, the Marantz uh, equalizers and, uh, you know, and using like Maxell tapes and things like that? I'll, I'll ask that after. This is Richard Solomon, Mike Riley from Pure Prairie League on tour this year. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Jeff Matson, the Dark Star Orchestra, and you're listening to Richard Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. Richard Solomon, welcome you back to My Father's Place Radio. Mike Riley's with me from Pure Prairie League. He's actually on tour, and he was nice enough while they're in Chicago to take a little bit of time with us because they're coming to Rosa Long Island to My Father's Place on September 13, 2019, and we're getting some great backstory. So before the break... Uh, I was asking you, were you like a stereo components guy? And you were telling me sort of while we were uh, saving the uh, the recording that you you certainly were. What we so talk talk about that and how is your music listening a little bit different today as as it is for all of us? Well, you know, today it's it's all technology and it, you know it's been duplicated uh, you know uh, digitally into the land of jagged edges. But back then. You know, listening to music was once again. It's you know an, an immersive experience. Experience, and I uh, I used to have Macintosh components and a Torrens uh, direct drive turntable, and uh, you know Bose uh, speakers oh, yeah. and uh, and JBL forty three elevens. You know the speakers that uh, really made everything sound warm and and transparent and huge. And uh, you know, it's it's uh, these days, it's it, everything is sort of transistorized, if you will, and and uh, you know, it's it's like uh, that's why I still listen to uh, you know some of the old albums and, and things that I have, and actually even some of the remastered uh, uh, re-releases of some of the uh, older stuff, um, you know, on my forty three elevens because it uh, it just sounds so warm and rich. So. It's it's I think it's it's all depending on your conditioning and your ears over the years, but um, you know I still prefer the uh, the warmth of analog to the uh, you know to the exact uh, you know it's it's like a it's like a seventy year old looking in the mirror and going I didn't see those blemishes there before. <laughs> I, I, I can relate. <laughs> so I kind of prefer the uh, the cataract vision of of uh, you know old age to the um you know to the to the razor sharp focus of uh of uh you know it's it's sort of like uh, uh the outer limits you know don't you can't adjust the horizontal don't touch the vertical you know it's a we can focus this to razor sharp clarity and that's sort of the way things are these days but uh you know i prefer so so in, in your recording process today would you would you prefer to do all vinyl if you could no, um, you know, I, I sort of, I don't know that I could say I embrace, you know, today's technology, but I certainly am a fan of it. I mean, on my computer, I've got, you know, pro tools that I take on the road and we record every show and, and, uh, you know, I can take it home and fool with it and see if I like something. And, 
Uh, but uh, but uh, no, it, when we go in the studio, we record digitally, um, but we use you know good old LA two A limiting amplifiers and and uh, some of the analog stuff you know to warm things up. Um, so it's a it's a you know it's a combination of using the old and new uh, in order to achieve you know what it is that you like personally, and that's I think these days that we we've got that capability is a, a tremendous thing. I'm all for it. So. In, in all the touring, so so fifty years of touring. What what is what has fifty years of touring taught you about America and the world? Just as far as you know, fans and music and merchandise and the whole thing. Like, you know, what what do you what do you see that you did you know that you didn't envision when you first started out? Like, it wasn't that? Didn't you guys start like sixty nine? Yeah. All right. Well, talk about that. But but what do you see? Like, you know, what what is what is what is your reflection upon all of this so far? Because it's not, you know, you know, it's 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 a story that's still way in progress. Well, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, what I see is that we're all the same. Um, music is the uh, is the common thread that unites us all. And uh, I mean, you know, in from a touring aspect, and you know, I mean, we get we get shows over the years where people just come because it's a an event, not necessarily coming to see Pure Prairie League per se, but they're you know coming to be part of an event. Um, but it, it, but year after year after year, I'm just amazed at the uh, the that this the folks that come and see our shows from back in the 70s when we were playing all the colleges to, uh, you know, to the present day where the, you know, the average age uh, of the uh, demographic that comes to see us is probably 50 or 55 or 60. So, but it's, they're all the same folks. And, you know, we always go out after the shows and talk to folks and, and uh, sign stuff and whatever. And, and um, it, it's, uh, it, it just amazes me that with all the crazy stuff that, is portrayed in the news media these days that they're missing the point that uh, that I think the majority of all of us are pretty much the same and want the same things and enjoy the same things. Do you do you remember? <coughs> pardon me. Do you remember? Do you remember when you were in a car and you heard your music as you were like either driving or as a passenger? And you went, "Wow, that's that's like." Do you remember that moment? Well, I do. And uh, where, where <laughs> were point, you? Where were you? Well, I think the first time was was probably uh, you know riding on our tour bus and uh, you know in the in the early and mid seventies and you know we'd uh, it was FM radio going on at that time it was way before Sirius and everything else but uh, but you know it's like all of a sudden they're playing Amy because we you know had been jamming it down all these college students' throats for years and <laughs> it looked like the work was paying off you know. Uh, and then somebody would, uh, you know, some some creative DJ would say, "Well, let's listen to something else on that album." And that's what we've started doing uh, in the last year or two is going back in, and and um, and looking back into those first three albums specifically and um, pulling stuff off the records that we had never played since like 1972 or 73 that are now in our in our set. So, uh, so are the songs. To you, new, new again. They are, and um, actually, the, the the way that the band plays them these days, after you know becoming, uh, if nothing else, uh, I won't say accomplished, but I will say seasoned musicians, um, we uh, you know we've breathed new life into these songs, and I think they're being played and presented the way that they. I wish we would have known that then, you know, uh, how to do. Um, but uh, it's just so much fun to bring out old songs from the first couple albums, like Angel and Woman and Angel Number Nine and and things like that. You know, rather than just Amy and Early Morning Riser, but bringing back some of these deep cuts and playing them on stage, and people are just uh, mind blown because they've got those records and they remember those songs back in the back of their mind. But uh, um, you know, here they are being presented uh, 50 years later, and. They sound uh, fresh and new, you know, fresh as ever. Now, you, you, I assume you're using different instruments to play these these older tunes. So does that nope. ha- does that have something of an impact on it as well? No, it's uh, you know, I mean, with the, the you know, the guitars are basically the guitars that just have pickups in them, and uh, and um, you know, there are there are. Uh, different ways to present but you know we still use a piano and an organ and and uh, acoustic guitars and electric guitars and you know uh it's it's uh it's pretty much the same as we did it back in the 70s but um uh 
I think the energy that uh, that we infuse into the tunes it makes the, uh, makes the difference. Wow! So, in terms of of when you pick your set list, uh, what 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 is your thought process now to bring certain oldies, you know, to, back into life and to infuse that with some of the classics, um, like I'll fix your fire flat tire, Merle. Sure, like of course. Of course, we don't do a show without uh, paying our respects to Merle Haggard. All right, let's talk about that because I, I've I've heard the story, and I thought this is a great this is a great untold story. So apparently, why don't you t- actually why don't you tell the story from the beginning? It's because it's a great story, and apparently it was it's, it's true. Well, absolutely, it's a folk uh, tale. You know, you know the, the song was written by Nick Grabenides. He was a keyboard player for Big Brother and the Holding Company, and he wrote this song around nineteen. 19- 1969 after after you know driving down the road and there was a guy over on the side of the road uh you know and had a, a, a flat tire on his truck and nick stopped and you know offered to help and you know it turns out that it's merle haggard <laughs> so he went just, and just so happens <laughs> yeah, amazing you know um well, it says when i was when i drove uh, as i drove down old 65 you know 65 goes right through nashville so, uh, you know, you never know who you're going to see on the side of the road. I mean, you know, you used to be able to see George Jones riding his lawnmower up the side of the freeway. Wow. So, um, but anyway, that was a true story. And uh, we sort of, uh, when Nick uh, wrote the song, um, it was kind of almost, you know, slow and ballady and, and kind of uh, honky. And uh, we took it and kind of stepped it up a little bit and uh, co-opted the song and, and adopted it. And we've been playing it since uh, 1970. And, and obviously there was a time where you probably chatted with Merle about the song. <laughs> yeah, we what were. Was, what yeah. was that like? Uh, well, we were, uh, as a matter of fact, I was on the phone with our publicist in Nashville years ago. And, and we were on a conference call with Vince and, uh, and Merle. And, uh, and, you know, Vince and Merle have become good friends and, uh, and I happen to get looped in on the conversation and, uh, and Merle says to Vince, he says, Vince, he says, you know, I like that song. Are those, are those good boys? And Vince says, Vince, they're, uh, Vince told Merle, he said, Merle, they're, they're great guys. He said, well, I like that song and you tell them for me that I like it. <laughs> so, and I was on, you know, I was I was the fly on the wall on the third line there. So it was, uh, it was it, that was, you know, from hearing it from the horse's mouth, that was something else. That was really cool. So, in in the very brief time that we have left, which is sad, who were some of the other people in the music world that you either wrote songs about or came into contact with, or collaborated with, or you know, or, or wrote songs with, or hung out, you know, backstage with. Well, we hung out. We we got to hang out with a lot of people, but um, you know, we 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 would try to get uh, some guests on our records. Emmy Lou Harris sang on a song that uh, Larry Goshorn and I wrote on the Two Lane Highway album uh, called "Just Can't Believe It." We had uh, Chet Atkins play guitar on "Kentucky Moonshine." We had Johnny Gimble, the great fiddle player, playing on "I'll Fix Your Flat Tire, Merle." We've had David Sanborn on sax, uh, you know, like Let Me Love You Tonight. Uh, Don Felder played a mandolin track on a, on a tune or two. And, uh, you know, over the years, we've had um, some great people uh, collaborate with us in the studio. Um, it's, you know, it's just one of those kind of things where serendipitously, you know, uh, Alan Toussaint was uh, in at Criteria Studios when we were recording a record down there, and we wound up doing a version of Working on a Coal Mine. And... Uh, uh, you you can hear him tinkling the ivories and it just you know we've been blessed to have some great opportunities to meet uh, you know some of our heroes. So who who were the who were the bigger influences in your youth that <clears throat> that you eventually got to meet? Oh God, Merle Haggard, George Jones, uh, Conway Twitty. Oh Conway uh, Twitty, wow. <laughs> oh yeah, wow. It, you know. Um, Loretta Lynn, we just did the Opry, uh, you know, last year and, and Miss Loretta was, uh, you know, one of the, one of the guests in that, and we got to meet her and talk with her and, um, you know, getting to play the Grand Ole Opry in the last few years, several times a year, uh, we've met a, a bunch of country stars that, uh, that, you know, that we had only heard on record. Um, I was standing with Jim Ed Brown and he was one of my dad's favorite, um, singers and, and, uh, 
so I called up my dad and put Jim on the phone. He says, uh, Tom, this is Jim Ed Brown. He says, oh, you're foolish. Because <laughs> <laughs> he knew that I was a jokester. And, and, uh, but, you know, he, he was uh, pretty uh, amazed that I was standing backstage at the Grand Ole Opry and, uh, you know, and had one of his, fa- his favorite country stars you know, on the phone with him. So it's those kind of things that just, uh, you know, life has afforded us some great opportunities and has also dealt us some uh, some tough blows. But, uh, you know, it's all part of life's rich tapestry. Well, interesting enough, I got to uh, meet John Carter Cash. He wrote a, he wrote a book um, about his family's sure. uh, recipes, and he still produces Loretta Lynn. And he talked a little bit about that in the interview. So, uh, you know, it, it was interesting when, you, when he was talking about, you know, in his house, I guess because it was, you know, Johnny Cash and June Carter, the, the, the people that would be in the living room were like all these legends of country. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. You know, but, but in many ways, you have a lot of that kind of similar experience, you know, meeting with some of the great musicians and artists you know, icons, legends, and heroes to a lot of us and the soundtrack of all of our lives. That that must be such a great thing to look at your scrapbook and, and go through the pictures over the last 50 years and see all of these people who, you know, you interacted with because you're part of that too, you know? Well, I, you know, it's, it's, I keep more of a mental scrapbook. Um, you know, there are times when I wish I had had a camera with me, but I can still remember the images vividly. and. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, and you're right. It's, you know, when all of a sudden you see some people that, uh, you know, are, are such a big part of that, uh, that existence that we call our lives. Um, you know, later on, I, my wife was sitting, uh, out in Sag Harbor the other day and, uh, Paul McCartney walked up and, and to buy some, uh, fire department, uh, raffle tickets. <laughs> wow. so it's, uh, you know, it's just that kind of, uh, you know, there are, there are moments that, uh, you know, we just, we should be thankful for every day when we wake up that we have those moments. Well, well <clears throat> what I want to do is I want to thank you for all that great music uh, that has really enriched all of us. And I do remember listening to so much of it uh, on FM and on college radio stations. And uh, we're, we're at College Station, too. So in many ways, that's, it's a great thing. Uh, I can't thank you enough for your time being with us today and sharing the great stories. And uh, I wish you a lot of success on that tour. Uh, and all the future tours, and and I really can't wait to read the book. So all I can say is, move over, Keith. <laughs> well, I'll be I'll be happy if it sells in the tens of copies. <laughs> Look, Bruce, Keith, move over. <laughs> I got to no, read. Gotta, yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, is there any any parting thoughts or words for the fans out there that you'd like me to have broadcasted for you? Well, we owe our careers to the people that uh, that appreciate our music and and come and spend their hard earned dough, uh, you know, to to come and see Pure Prairie League do what we do because we have to, you know, we do it because of who we are, and um, and uh, you know, basically, we once again from places like my father's place to uh, you know to big concert arenas and everything else, we owe our very existence to the fans and uh, there's no way in the world that we could ever express our gratitude other than just by playing our music for them and um, and and hoping that they enjoy it and have a good time at the show well on their behalf i want to as a fan too thank you for making great music and continuing to do so despite the loss of record stores <laughs> <laughs> indeed all right stay with me this is richard solomon we'll be back next week mike you're the best thank you thanks richard thanks for having me 